Okay, he's ready to start. Not all at once. Well, don't overwhelm me with all of the hustle and the bustle today. <clears throat> Since we're a packed house, clearly, people watching on camera can't tell. We have a bunch of people slacking today because of the light drizzle. <clears throat> so Leviticus, we've come to this week the heart of the book. Leviticus 16 is the middle or the heart of the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is the heart of Torah. So we are literally at the center, the epicenter of, of the people of God in Leviticus 16. And it's important to realize, because when you do Bible studies, a lot of times you read through the book and you come and you pick up and you read this chapter this week and then next chapter next week, da 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 da, da kind of gets, what, what gets lost is the overall structure of the book. <clears throat> so that's why I always harp on it each week and why I always emphasize where we are in the book. Because it's helpful to see the flow. Leviticus is, is crafted in, in masterful artistry. The, the, the way the book is laid out, there's so much stuff in it. And the symbolism and the themes. And Leviticus 16, we come to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most holy day in all of Israel's history. And what happens is Leviticus, the first opening chapters are the sacrifices. Then there's this brief narrative, Baron's sons, completely ignoring everything that God has just told them in the opening chapters and paying with their lives because they approached his sanctuary in an unholy manner. Then, right after that, there's a long period that we've just gotten through of God saying, this is how you are to be holy as you approach me. So God's kind of fixing it back on like, hey, don't repeat the mistakes that they made. Now we come to Leviticus 16, which is resuming that brief narrative that was back in chapters 10 and 11. And so it picks up right there. So all of the th stuff that we've spent the last month and a half discussing, uh, now this kind of gets back to the narrative of what's going on. So that was like all of chapters, you know, 11, 12 through 15 were kind of a parenthesis, a parenthetical note of like, this is what holiness is. This is how it's going to look in your life. This is how you're going to approach the altar. This is how you're going to minister before me. Now in 16, it gets back to kind of the flow of the narrative that's, that's only brief. Leviticus only has like two narrative sections in the entire book. And they're, 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 so they divide the book into three parts. And some have suggested that that corresponds to the three parts of the tabernacle, the outer court, tabernacle, and the Holy of Holies. And regardless of whether that's the case or not, Leviticus is not a book of narrative. It's not a book of action. It's, it's a book of explanation. It's a book of imagery. And, and it's more than when people say it's a book of laws. Yeah, there are laws in it, but the laws are given as theology. The laws are given as artistry. The laws are given as imagery to paint a large picture, a worldview into which Israel lives. So in chapter 16, we come to, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. So that immediately lets you know, this is, this is after the stuff that happened back in chapter 10. Now we're picking up here. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement couple on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement couple. 
So this is a key point to realize because I appear in the cloud over the atonement covenant. God is saying this curtain with the woven cherubim, as we saw when we looked at Exodus, that the, the guardian warriors that separate sinful humanity from the realm of God, this curtain divides my space, the most holy place, from everything else. So you can't just walk into my presence. Aaron can't just walk into my presence. Even though Aaron's the high priest, he can't even come whenever he wants. One time, once a year, he can enter my presence, and it'll tell him how. But Moses is, or God is emphasizing to Moses, worship is on my terms. You enter into my presence on my terms. And ultimately, as we saw with Nadab and Abihu back in chapter 10, it's because it's for their own protection. It's for Israel's own good. God's holiness is overpowering and it's a consuming fire. And so God is saying, I am, my holiness is too um, overwhelming. For you to think you can just enter into anytime you want. He's ingraining into them this concept of there is a fundamental difference between the holy and the normal. Between the sacred and between the profane. There's this thing called sin and it has marred all of creation to such extent that all of creation is, is in danger. If it's exposed to unbridled, unfiltered holiness of God. So God is building into Israel this understanding over the centuries that will be every year, every Yom Kippur, they'll recognize this. And this, this whole ceremony will be an, an acting out. It's an object lesson. It's like we said a few weeks ago. It's like the children's sermon. If you go to church and there's children's time, the pastor does something with a little prop or a little image or something that can stick in the kids' minds, and they can remember that as they grow up. And usually also it gives the parents who are listening something to think about as well. So that's what Leviticus is doing. That's what this ritual is doing for some pretty heavy theology. So it says, uh, verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. So if Aaron wants to enter into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and we'll get into that, this is how he's to do it. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he's to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. First thing he does is he changes his clothes. He doesn't, he takes off his priestly garments. On this day, when Aaron goes in to represent all of Israel before God, he is not a high priest. He is, he is an Israelite and a representative of the Israelites. And so he wears simple linen garments. He takes off the ephod. He takes off the breastplate. He takes off the head and the turban. All of that special stuff that, that Exodus told us all about in the closing chapters. He takes all that off. And he is just the priest, the man, the Israelite. And he's going to go in and enter the presence of God. And later in the Bible, when it, when it pictures angels, almost always in, in the presence of God, like in the prophetic books and the apocalyptic books, the angels are almost always described as wearing white linen. So if this is a case of Aaron is, is, is being clothed like the angels to enter into the presence of God, or if in those instances the angels are being spoken of as the high priests who can enter into the presence of God, Whichever way that goes, it doesn't matter, but it's a neat little parallel. Whenever you see angels in God's presence later in Scripture, keep a note, keep a lookout for white linen garments because that says that's what they'll wear. And then in Revelation, it talks about those who died for their faith, who, who were martyred for their faith. They're given white linen garments 
to put on. So it's, it's whatever it specifically uh, emphasizes, what it connotes is intimacy with God and humility before God and approaching God, not with elaborate uh, priestly decor, but just simple, plain white linens. So that's what Aaron does first, and then he takes his offerings, and then he takes offerings for the people. Verse 6, Aaron's to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. <coughs> then he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So first he's got to offer his own sin. He can't approach God with his own sin and try to minister on behalf of the people. Aaron's house has to be in order. Him and his household. Aaron's household has to be in order before he can then represent the household of all of Israel before God. That's a lesson in there for clergy. Um, verse 7. Verse 8. Verse 7. Then he's take two goats, present them before the war of the answers of the tent of meeting. Now, verse 8. He's to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for, what does your Bible say right there? Scapegoat. Okay, how many says something different than scapegoat? None? You're all reading NIVs? If you're reading NIV, there's a footnote there. So follow the footnote to the bottom of your page. And at the bottom of your page, this is why you should bring your Bibles, by the way. <laughs> at the bottom of your page, what does it say? Meaning of the Hebrew for this word is uncertain. Yep. What else does it say? The translation note, not the not the study note. Anybody? Somebody's got to go out of here. Nobody. It's tiny, tiny print, so you may need glasses to read it. If you have an IV, it's down there at the bottom. There should be a note that should say that is the goat of removal, Hebrew Azazel. Does it say that? You have that in your Bible anywhere? Yeah. If you doesn't, get a new Bible. Um, so this is this is where we come to this thing, this first mystery of this atonement uh, ceremony. Two goats. Brings it before the Lord. Cast lots, which is like rolling dice or flipping a coin, or we don't know exactly, but it's something like that. One of these goats is going to be designated La Adonai, to Yahweh, to the Lord. The other is going to be designated La Zazel, to Azazel, or for Azazel. Now, what does Azazel mean? Well, some translations just leave it as Azazel, and they capitalize the A, and they say this is a proper name. One goat goes to Yahweh, the other goat goes to this Azazel person, whoever it is. Others follow the Septuagint and the Latin versions, and they say, no, Azazel is two words, Az and Azazel, put together, and one means goat, and the other means to take away. So this is the literally the goat of removal, or the, in Old English, scapegoat, the goat that escapes. So one is the scapegoat, one is to the Lord. And other translations um, have said this is, Azazel is an old Hebrew term and it means a rocky place or mountainous place or wilderness place. So this goat is for the wilderness and this goat is for the Lord. So there's three ways that people read this verse. And, and here's the thing, this, this term, Azazel, is not ever used anywhere else in the Bible except four times in this chapter. 
So the only thing we know about this word has to come from how it's used in this chapter. And as we'll see, uh, the goat that's, well, let's just read, just keep that in mind. Three options of what this second goat is. Uh, let me go on because this is a long chapter. Uh, where do we stop? Verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as for Azazel, or in Hebrew, as a scapegoat, or as a removal. Verse 11, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. He's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense. Take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. So the first thing he does is he prepares the inside, the Holy of Holies. He takes some of the uh, blood from the sacrifice with the incense and the fire, takes it in, creates this smoke, and it fills the inner chamber. The Holy of Holies is filled with smoke. The glory of the Lord, it's, it's filled there and it covers the atonement cover. So it creates this, literally it creates a smoke screen. Uh, he, verse 14, he's to take some of the bull's blood this is the sacrifice for his own sin. And with his fingers, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. That's the ark. And he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. So seven times he's sprinkling the sin offering onto the thing that represents where God himself is. All right? He is literally sprinkling the blood or, or slinging the blood at God in this ritual. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. So that was his own offering. Now for the people's offering. Take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar, it's before the Lord, the altar outside where they'd sacrifice, make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood, some of the goat's blood, put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on the altar with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So in, in, in tabernacle ritual, sprinkling blood on something paradoxically cleanses it. That's the irony. If you sprinkle blood on something, it doesn't clean it. It makes it dirty. It makes it bloody. If you've ever done laundry with blood on it, it's hard to get out. But in the, in the world, in the microcosm of Israel's worship, it's that blood that's been sacrificed on the altar as a sacrifice. That blood... Contrary to anything you'd imagine, that blood actually is what cleanses what it's sprinkled on. So the, so the receiving, the, the blood sprinkled on has a cleansing effect. Now for Christians, that should just set off huge, you know, like light bulbs. Huh. Blood cleansing. Where would that idea ever come from in the New Testament? Well, it comes from here. 
blood cleanses, but only blood of the sacrifice, only blood of the pure sacrifice, only blood of the bulls and the goats that have been offered to God as a sacrifice. That blood cleanses. Other blood that's poured out or that's eaten or that's, that's used, that other blood defiles. Sacrificial blood cleanses. So there's theology in here that's starting to make its way into the foundation of Israel's worldview. And the payoff will come later in the New Testament, fully, when you, when you realize, whoa, that's what all this symbolism is. That's what's going on whenever I take communion and, and says, this is my blood of the covenant. That's what's going on when we talk and sing about Jesus' blood cleansing me. That's what's behind all of this, is this ritual. So... He's taken, he's cleansed the inner part, the, the Holy of Holies, because of the sin, the rebellion, and the uncleanness of Israelites. The image is that over the year, throughout the year, the sins of Israel are piling up and piling up. And the uncleanness of Israel is creeping ever closer to God's presence. Remember, the tabernacle is like these concentric rings which are symbolic of the concentric levels of Mount Sinai, and God dwells at the top, and it's like sin is encroaching, uncleanness is encroaching. The greater the sin in Israel, the more defiling it is to the tabernacle. So there are ways that God has throughout the year for the smaller sins to be atoned for. The sins of omission, the sins of accidental you know, impurity, all of those things are atoned for over the year, are cleansed over the year, but the sins of rebellion, the high-handed sins, the sins that are done intentionally, there has not been any way for those to be atoned for thus far in Leviticus. No, you couldn't do a, commit a sin wantonly, openly, consciously, and then go sacrifice and say, I'm good, I'm forgiven. It didn't work that way. You weren't forgiven of those sins in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. The only way those sins could be forgiven is through this day, this ritual. And so all through the year, the sins of Israel are creeping up like a floodwater, rising, rising, rising towards the center of the sanctuary, towards God's very presence. So on this one day of atonement, Aaron goes in, takes the offering, sprinkles the blood that represents all of the people's sins and all of the evil throughout the entire year, sprinkles it on the, on the uh, Holy of Holies, the uh, atonement cover right there, the ark. Then he moves outward. And he sprinkles it onto the outer uh, altar where the sacrifices are made, cleansing that. So now the inner sanctum has been cleansed. Now the outer sanctuary has been cleansed. Now the final step is going to be to take all of that spiritual, theological, toxic pollution and get it out of Israel completely. That's what Dom Kippur is. It's a house cleaning. It's God's house cleaning. Aaron is taking the sins and he's taking the defilement and he's, he's starting in the center and he's cleansing, working its way out. And then the final step is going to be get it out of Israel completely. The tabernacle has been cleansed. Now the people have to be cleansed, the whole community. So it says when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and he's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. The Hebrew uses three terms here that are the three terms for sin in Israel. It uses the basic word for sin, chata, which just means to sin, to mess up, to 
do something wrong. Then it uses the term peshat, which means to transgress, to go around God's boundaries, to do something uh, out of bounds, to do something prohibited, a transgression. And then it uses the final word, avon, which is the most intensive form of sin. That is translated as iniquity. And that is like latent rebellion. So if, if Chata is just messing up and doing the wrong thing, and Pasha is sort of skirting around or crossing borders that you know you're not supposed to, Avon is saying, I not only see the border, but I'm going to go right through it. High-handed sin. Rebellion is how it's translated sometimes. Iniquity or rebellion. So those are the three words in Hebrew that describe sin. And all of them are used right here. This is the day that all of the sins of Israel can be done away with as a whole. And they happen by the live goat, the one that's not been offered as a sacrifice. He's brought alive and Aaron puts not one hand on him like he's leaning on the sacrifice to confess sins in the other rituals, but this is an intensive day. So he puts both hands fully putting the sins, transmitting the guilt, uh, uh, confessing out loud the sins of the people. And there's rabbinic sources that give like what the priest would have said and the kind of things he would have said. Uh, we don't know for sure because it's not in this text, but it would be a time of confession, national confession. Lays both hands on the live goat, confesses all the sins of the people, and the sins are placed on the goat. They are loaded on the back of this animal. They are, this, this is like a tanker truck, and Aaron is like taking a big hose and hooking it up and just dumping all of the sewage of Israel's sin into that tanker, filling it up. That'd be a modern equivalent of what's going on here, because we use trucks to transport stuff, whereas they would use animals. But the, the image is the same. All of the sins of the people, all the garbage, all the pollution, all the moral filth, all of everything that has been brought out of the Holy of Holies, out of the altar in the outer place, and out of Israel completely by putting it onto this goat. All their sins, put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a person appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he put on before him in the most holy place, leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular priestly garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the bird offering for himself, the burnt offering for the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. Remember, the burnt offering was the celebratory offering. It was the offering of oneness with God. Now that the sins have been driven out, there can be this fellowship. There can be this oneness with God. There can be this national renewal of the covenant. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat, or to Azazel, must wash his clothes, bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and their offer are to be burned up. The man who burns them up must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. So the, sin, the, the offerings for, for these sins aren't to be eaten. You know, normal the offerings would be eaten. These are not to be eaten. These are to be these are the sins that represent all of the sins of all of the year of the whole community of Israel. So even the 
the leftovers of the sacrifice. The blood was used to cleanse. Even the leftovers that would normally be either eaten or burned up on the altar are taken outside the camp and done away with. An entire purging, a complete purging of the evils and the sins and the iniquity of Israel. So now, um, oh, we'll finish real quick. It says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and do not do any work. Deny yourselves is sometimes translated or interpreted as fast. That's why Jews today fast on Yom Kippur. Um, and that deny yourself is, is uh, it could have that meaning. It probably has that meaning. Uh, deny yourself, do not do any work, whether native born or alien among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest. And you must deny yourselves. This is a lasting ordinance. The priest who's appointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garments to make atonement for the holy place, for the tent of meeting, the altar, and for the priest, and all the community of the people. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. So once a year... All the sins. This is the only time your sins that were committed openly, unrepentantly, high-handedly, this is the only time that they could be forgiven. And you could have assurance of that forgiveness uh, under the system of Israel's sacrifices. And so you see the importance of this ritual. It's the centerpiece. It's the high holiday, the highest of the high holidays. It's the day of national repentance. If you have Jewish friends today, they still celebrate this. Now, there's no temple, there's no priesthood, so there's no goats involved. It's instead, after the destruction of the temple by Rome, the rabbis came along after the priesthood was done away with, and the rabbis said, okay, repentance now takes the place of these offerings. And they based that on some stuff from the prophets and how God <coughs> a broken heart, not sacrifices. But they came along and they, they basically said, so now on this day, while we can't do all this ritual because there's no temple, there's no priesthood, we as a nation, corporately, we repent. And our repentance, our tears, our grief, our sorrow over sin is our sacrifice. And that's how we have forgiveness. Other Jews, at around the same time when the temple was destroyed, they said, no, the temple was destroyed and this ritual was over because the, the final sacrifice had been made. And his name was Messiah, was Yeshua, Jesus. And, and so because of his sacrifice, he now eternally intercedes on our behalf and offers this cleansing. And that sect of Judaism went on to become Christianity. And the other went on to become today what we have at rabbinic Judaism. And so, but it all kind of traces itself back to this ceremony. <clears throat> so just a couple of things before we end. What does it matter if it's translated scapegoat or, or Azazel or Rocky Place or whatever? Well, some critical scholars, they say Azazel is the name of an ancient uh, wilderness demon or deity. And it was seen as a rival. There were desert tribes and they believed there were desert spirits and desert demons. And so in order to placate those desert demons, you would offer them a sacrifice. So this is a remnant of a pre-Israelite sacrifice to Azazel that's been incorporated into Torah over the centuries, writing, rewriting. That's kind of a secular, critical view of this ceremony. I think that's nonsense. Um, 
uh, I just I think it's, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. What we do see is that this term, Azazel, whatever it means, whether it's referring to the goat, and it is the Azazel, the goat of removal, or whether it's referring to the place out in the wilderness, the Azazel, the rocky wilderness. In, in later rabbinic times, they would not just leave the goat away, they would actually throw it off a cliff and make sure it died so that it couldn't wander back into camp. That was much later in Israel's history. But that's was part of the tradition. So whether it means that place where you take all of Israel's sins and just dump it, or whether Azazel is the name of a, a, a deity, not deity, a spirit, a symbolic uh, title for this demonic evil. That could very well be the case because in Israel, there were concepts of there are places that are the realm or the domain of evil. So in Israel thinking, and this carries into the New Testament, the sea, the abyss, that's the realm of evil. That's the realm of chaos and the demonic. The wilderness, that's the realm of evil. That's the realm of danger and, and of the demonic and the forces. And so those two concepts represented places of sin's origin or, or demonic origin or all of the things that go against the holiness of God. So it could very well be the case that this is an example of how Israel used this concept. God used this concept of the Azazel, the the the. the the boogeyman out in the wilderness, the demon, whatever. And if that's the case, then what the day of Yom Kippur is doing is pretty awesome. It's basically saying, we're going to take all of the filth of sin and all of the junk and all of the pollution and all of the toxicity of evil and sin that has plagued the entire community for a whole year. We're going to load it on the back of this goat and we're going to send it back where it belongs which is back to the forces of evil, back to the wilderness, back to the outer darkness, out to Azazel, and he can have it all because it all comes from him anyway. And so Azazel becomes this figure that represents Satan or the enemies of God, like Leviathan does in the book of Job or in the prophets like Isaiah. Leviathan, this chaos monster, is sort of an image that God uses as a representation of evil and the demonic. So, so the Bible does incorporate these extra Israelite beliefs, but it always transforms them in a unique way. And in this case, if you do translate scapegoat as Azazel, which I think is actually a better way to do it, then what it's saying powerfully is all of the sins of the people loaded onto this truck and backed right up into his backyard. It's taking all, it's like loading up a truck full of manure and dumping it on your neighbor's yard. Like that would send a message to your neighbor. I think you're full of crap, and I'm going to make sure you're full of crap. Here you go. Don't sit on the truck. It'd be similar to that, only on a cosmic scale. That would be the, the underlying theology of this Day of Atonement, if that's what it means. And it's really cool because you see Jesus do that in the New Testament. What does he do when he encounters this bunch of pigs and this guy who's got a demon, and he casts the demon out, and this demon says, let us go into the pigs, and he sends in the pigs, and where do the pigs brush off to? right into the ocean, and right into the abyss, as Luke uses that word. Meaning that evil, demonic, pollution is sent back to its source. So this could very well be, it's not 100%, there are other ways to interpret this, but to me, that's a powerful subplot of what's going on on this Day of Atonement. Is sin is being purged from Israel and sent where it belongs, away, away from the people. As far as the east is to the west, he's removed our transgressions. So there's atonement, 
on the altar, there's forgiveness of sins, and then there's uh, expiation, if you want to use a fancy theological word. There's a removal of sins. And both of those happen this one day, this one holy holiday, right at the center of the book that's the heart of the book that we're studying, that prepares Israel then to be the newly cleansed people that can live out the requirements that we're going to see in the following chapters of the book. And next week begins the Holiness Code, the section of Israel that forms their epic, who they are in the midst of the nations, now that they've been cleansed, now that they've been redeemed, now that they've been called out, how do they live amongst these people who do all of these things? That's the next section that Leviticus moves on to. But we are three minutes over. For the heart of the book, I can go three minutes and not feel too bad about it. Um, that's it. Come back next week, and we'll see you then.